Well, as we approach our time in the Word of God, I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them with me to uh, two places, really. Romans chapter 15, of course, we're going to spend some time there at the end of our time this morning, so you want to keep that bookmarked for yourself. But also, I want you to open your Bibles to what I read this morning in Psalm 12. Psalm 12. We have been speaking over the last several weeks, really months, about behavior, about Christian behavior, the details and reality of you and I living each and every day as Christians. It seems, as I said last Lord's Day, that behavior is at the very forefront of the minds of people today. Uh, You can see it on the news, you can read it on news feeds and other social media outlets where behavior is being pictured and shown in various forms and in various ways. And so it is on the minds of all kinds of people, even though they might not define it that way. And we as Christians are exhorted to live in ways that would really defy what the world is doing or show a difference to the world about their own behavior and about what the gospel is, right? We are Christians. And we know that we are called, as we learned last week, to live in such a way that the world might know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are to love one another. Well, we live, as you know, in very troubling days. Several years ago, the late Greek scholar J. Grisham Machen made this comment about our own country. He said, quote, America is running on the momentum of a godly ancestry. This was obviously several years ago. He said, but when that momentum goes, when that momentum ends, when it stops, when the momentum goes, God help America, unquote. The godly ancestry in this country has certainly faded. And it continues to fade even more and more quickly in our own day, in the time in which we are living. In fact, we may be at the place where God has completely given us over to our own societal lusts. We may be at that very place where we have read well over a year ago in Romans chapter 1 that God says, have it your way. And Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, the staggering words, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many are those who enter by it. I believe it has always been the time of the few. From the day that Adam sinned and fell, in which God began His redemptive plan, it has been a time of the few. The day in which you and I live now seems to confirm that on a very moment-by-moment basis. In other words, Christianity, following after Jesus Christ, believing, trusting by faith in Him alone, has never been the popular way 
It has never been the popular way in our society. It has never been the popular way in the world. And while that has always been true, it seems now that that is more and more heightened. Those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior find themselves in the minority in our world today. And because of that, true Christians find themselves facing opposition to Christianity at every turn. Sadly, even within popular evangelicalism. The the fomenting, the, the anger, the bitterness against Christianity is in our neighborhoods, it is in our cities, it is in our state governments. And most of all, in our time, opposition to God's agenda flourishes throughout our national government. And I'm not here to give a political message this morning by any means, but we all can see it. Dr. Steve Lawson describes it this way. He said, quote, The once God-fearing society in which the believer once lived previously built upon the moral absolutes of God's law, is now crumbling from within. In its place is a culture where the prevailing worldview is built on pagan beliefs and secular humanism, unquote. Absolutely right. And the question that I want us to ponder today and even ask ourselves is this, how do you and I as Christians, in light of that world, in light of the world in which we live, how do we respond to that kind of godless society? How do we respond and live in a godless society like that? Because we know that we should not fear, right? We spent a whole hour at least a few weeks ago talking about what it's right to fear, the right kind of fear, not fearing the things of the world and the things of the day, because that kind of fear is not of the Lord. We are to fear God and Him only. So we know that we should not live in the fear of things. We know that we should be living in the dying to self kind of lifestyle. The attitude of the Christian is to be like Christ, to die to self, to relinquish everything that we have this hold on to the hand of a sovereign God who, if He chooses to remove it, so be it, and if He chooses to allow it, so be it. But it's the sovereign hand of God. We strive to. We strive to do that as Christians. But I know for my own heart and my own life, and I'm sure it's true for you as well as a Christian, it can be very discouraging, can't it? It can be very difficult. How do we live in such a troubling world? How do we live when it seems that insanity has become the norm? The answer is actually rather simple. We hear of it in Romans chapter 15, as we'll see in just a bit. But before we go there, I want us to be here in Psalm 12, because King David gives us a great example to follow. Now, I want us this morning, as we look at Psalm 12, to just kind of hang our thoughts in three primary areas. 
Three primary areas. Number one, the problem. The problem. What was the problem that David is dealing with? Two, what's his plan? What's his plan for dealing with it? And then three, what's the promise? The promise. So the problem, the plan, the promise. I'm calling it the critical problem, the critical problem, the crucial plan, and the comforting promise. Let's begin then to just look at this first primary area, the critical problem. Notice what David says, as I read earlier in just the first two verses. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. You notice that David begins this psalm by describing the wicked words of those who have no relationship with God. They are defined as the wicked, the unfaithful, the ungodly. And they speak, they speak with words, and they speak these words with the purpose of deceiving, with the purpose of bringing others down. They are flattering lips. And to David, it's as if there's no one following after God. As David surveys the economy of the community in which he is now king, it seems as if there isn't any righteous around It's interesting when you look at this psalm, because in a very real way, Psalm 12 kind of is a commentary, if you will, on chapter or Psalm 10 and Psalm 11. If you notice Psalm 10, it's the wicked and the use of their own mouths that David highlights. You notice, beginning in verse 2, in pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted, Psalm 10. Let them be caught in the plot's which they have devised, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he just snorts at them. He says to himself, I'm not going to be moved throughout all generations. I'll not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the hiding places. He kills the innocent. He eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in his hiding place as a lion in its lyre. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net, and he crouches. He bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Psalm 11, there's similar despair in the heart of King David as he writes, surveys society, he sees the foundations of society being destroyed by wicked people. Notice in verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's what David's saying in his heart. If the foundations of society go, what can the righteous do? 
total despair. For David, it's a desperate time. It's a troubling time. So he cries out to God in verse 1 of Psalm 12, Help, Lord. Help. The word help is an interesting word. It's more accurately translated save. Save. Save us, Lord. That's David's cry. Save us, Lord. Why? Because the godly man is no more. Could be said this way. Lord, we need help. We need help. Where are all the godly people? I mean, you have sat in your own homes. You have sat in your own vehicles. You have listened to the radio. You have watched the TV. You have sat on your computer with social media before you, and you have said that in your own heart if you're a genuine Christian. Lord, help us. For David, it's like being isolated in the desert. By himself, and there's no help around. I was reading that recently and reminded of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Elijah had just been used as the man of God to take out 450 plus prophets of the false god Baal. And Elijah had accomplished this great thing. In fact, if you go to Israel and go on top of Mount Carmel, they have a statue of Elijah with his foot on the neck of a prophet of Baal with a, with a, a big goad in his hand. It's pretty fun to see that. Think of what took place. But here's Elijah who had just done that. And now in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 10, he's, he's running. And he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, for God, the God of hosts, The sons of Israel have forgotten your covenant. They have torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. There's nobody to help me. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's like, there's no no righteous around. I'm the only guy left. I wonder... wonder in your own heart as you've surveyed the times that we're living in if you've ever felt like that. When it seems, like I said, that insanity has become the norm. Maybe even in your workplace, you're trying to do the right thing at work. You're living the right way. You're, you're, you're living for God. Maybe even your own home and the people around you and the home that you're in don't know Christ. And they just want to get rid of you. They just want to silence you. They want to do away with you. Why? Because your standard, standard that you live by, they're seeing it and they want none of it. Maybe some of you young people who are here this morning have thought about your world in which you live and you see it and you survey it and you think to yourself, man, I'm trying to live righteously. But boy, I'm sure lonely. Lonely in doing that. That was David's heart. That was David's heart. He's sensing the world around him. And you and I can identify with that. He's surrounded, but not by godly people. Not by those that he can trust. Not by someone who will speak truth. Rather, he's around people who just lie. In fact, verse 2 tells us that they're deceitful people. They speak falsehood to one another. 
It's not good enough just to speak falsehood to to those whom they do not like. They speak falsehood to one another. It's all about lies. It's lies at every turn. Literally, every literally it says this, everyone speaks worthless words to his neighbor. They have deceitful double speak in their hearts. You see, the reason they speak evil to their neighbors is because their heart is full of wickedness. These are the people who say one thing and mean another. The people whose yes isn't yes. Those who make promises but have no intention on keeping the promise. You see, you and I as as just general moral humans might have some sense of, of understanding when a person under such great pressure upon their life says a lie about something in order to get out from under the pressure, and then they realize it later and they try to make that right by their own words and their own life. We might understand that, but the person who will willfully calculate lies is a man of a double heart. We have to understand, you have to understand as you look at this psalm that the word falsehood here in verse 2 means more than just not telling truth. The original word here carries more the idea of insincerity in speaking. It's more than just telling a lie. It's the reality of an insincerity. They speak the truth at all. There's no sincerity in it at all. In other words, they speak to others, but not being sincere in what they say to them. Someone once said it this way, it's words without weight. But someone said, words without weight. In other words, they cannot be trusted. Does that sound familiar? People speaking today, things we hear, seemingly cannot be trusted. There's no weight to it. And so David surveys his surroundings, and he sees liars, he sees flatterers, and it's all over society. It's everywhere. It's at every turn. He sees people building a life of lies deliberately and systematically and even persistently working to deceive. It's a critical problem. It's a critical problem. So what is his response? What is his response to that kind of world? What is his plan? What's he going to do? Well, look at his crucial plan, verses 3 and 4. Here's what he says. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. Those who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? I like that. In the midst of what seems to be complete spiritual collapse in all of society, What does David do? What's his plan? He just prays. David prays. And I was thinking about that. It's it's somewhat ironic and yet so refreshing. This is why David is one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. Because David is so like us. 
He's so like us. Sometimes, isn't it true, sometimes you come to Scripture, you read about the characters of the Bible, and they seem rather larger than life, don't they? You read about Noah, and here's this man who who walked in this, this place of the earth where every thought of the heart was wicked all the time, as it says in Genesis chapter 5, and Noah is there, and he spends years under the command of God building an ark, and then he survives the greatest flood that has ever gone across the face of the earth. And while we can identify with his trust of God, we have a very difficult time sensing what he sensed in life. We read about the time in which Noah lived, and we, we try to grapple with what that would have been like. We're, we think of somebody like Joseph, whose life was filled with all kinds of calamity from the time he was a young boy, and he had brothers who hated him, and they sell, sell him into slavery, and they, they cannot stand him, and he goes into slavery, and yet he's sold into uh, Potiphar's house, and, and he's jailed for numerous years because of a trumped-up charge, and you get a glimpse of all the trials of David's life, or of Joseph's life in Genesis, but it's hard to clearly identify with him. I don't know what it's like to be Joseph. I've never been thrown in a cistern, left for dead. Think of young teenage boys like Daniel, who defied the king and was thrown into the lion's den. I don't know about you, but I don't know how many of you can personally identify with that. Oh, sure, we call things, well, I was in the midst of the lion's den, but I mean, you've never had a lion roaring at your face. But David, his heart is on display in just about every psalm you read. By God's grace, the entire Psalter, much of the entire Psalter of the Psalms is written by David. And by God's grace, we can read about David's sin. We can read about his victories over sin. His sin of when he committed adultery and his Repentance of that in Psalm 32. Even though he was a king, we can identify with David, can identify with the heartache of that, difficulty of our own sin. We resonate with what he says. And yet the biggest reason, at least for me, why I, I, I like David is because David says what we're thinking. David says what we want to say. He's that person in the crowd that asks the question that everybody else is thinking. He thinks and he speaks what he wants to say and think. And here, here in this psalm, he shows us how to respond in times that are very difficult. We are to pray. We are to pray. Now, I know, I know we think about that. We say, oh yeah, we, we should pray. We've heard that simple truth so many times before, but you know what? How often, how often do we forget to respond like that? How often in the midst of reading the news headline or, or watching the social media feed or hearing the news or seeing what's going on around has our first thought been, 
I need to pray. I just need to pray. I need to go before a holy God, before a sovereign God, before the God who knows all things, and I need to pray. As we survey what's going on in our own country, as we see and read about the increase of injustice and the robbing of righteousness in our own world, we ought to be praying like this. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. That's David's prayer. That's what he says. Look, there's no righteous around. It seems as if I'm alone and left. Where have all the godly gone? Okay, here's my response. I'm going to pray. Lord, cut off all the flattering lips. Cut off all the liars. Lord, stop all the boasters. Stop all of those who are proud in our day. Just cut them off. You say, why would David pray that? That seems rather strong. David prays that because those around him were claiming three apparent realities. The first reality was this. Notice that winning... Winning justifies my deceit. That winning justifies my lying. Winning justifies my flattery. Notice what it says in verse 4. They say, with our tongue we will prevail. With our tongue we will prevail. Listen, that's pragmatism at its best. That's if the ends justify the result, then the means don't really matter. If I'm going to win, then I'll lie. And lying is the way to do that, then I'll lie. No problem. That's what they were saying. Winning justifies my deceit. I'll say whatever I need to say in order to win. Does that sound like our day? That's more prevalent in our time than ever, especially in our government. Truth doesn't matter anymore. Only winning matters. Lord, cut off all the flattering lips. Those that speak and say, with my tongue I will prevail. What I say is what matters to me. doesn't matter anything else, as long as I win. But they had a second claim. A second claim, notice, they claimed autonomy. Our lips are our own. Our lips are our own. This is autonomy. In other words, I have the right to say whatever I want to say. I am my own master. No one rules over me. Exactly what's happening in our day and age. Autonomy is touted as the latest and greatest virtue. Do whatever you want. Have no ruler over you. Say whatever you want. Do whatever you want. No one can rule you at all. I own my lips. There's nothing you can do to me. Out of that kind of heart, they make the third claim. The third claim, verse 4, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Here's the third claim, autonomous freedom. 
Autonomous freedom. Winning justifies my deceit. I am my own person. I have autonomous freedom. No one rules me. I am accountable to no one. Who is Lord over us? Those are the boastful sayings and lives of the wicked heart. Many of you probably in your own college classes of philosophy have had to face the undaunting and sad task of reading the French philosopher Voltaire. He was an atheist who said in his day, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. He said, my single hand will destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to build, unquote. Now that's the boastings of a wicked heart. But here's what God said, Matthew 16, verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Who was right? Whose word is true? Of course, we know God's word is true. And the irony is, the irony is that 50 years after the French atheist Voltaire said those words, 50 years, the house in which he had written most of his atheistic philosophies, that very house was being used as a headquarters of the Bible Society, the Geneva Bible Society, to pass out literature for the Christian faith. The Word of God says the nations, in Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar? God just sits and laughs. Voltaire made his claim and God just laughed. Listen, God's not going to be mocked. And how misleading human words can be and So with sickening pride, man boasts of his own greatness. And yet our response is to be like David's. We pray. We pray. We pray that God will remove the deceivers and the God-haters from our land. So the critical problem was that there are no godly ones around. The crucial plan was just to pray. Pray always. Pray without ceasing, as Paul said. Pray. We have then this last area of thought. Comforting promise. The comforting promise. Verse 5 to 7, because of the devastation of the afflicted, Because of the groaning of the needy. You see, they're praying. They're praying to God. They're they're crying out to God the very thing that David is crying out. Save, Lord. Save us. Help us. Put away the flattering lips. Put away the deceivers. Because of the devastation of the afflicted. Because of the groaning of the needy. God says, now I will arise. Says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words. 
They're as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. At first, there are the words of the wicked. Now we hear the words of God. At first, there are the boastings of the French atheist kind of philosophy that God will be destroyed, and now God speaks. Now God speaks. And the comforting promise here is that His Word will prevail. That's the most important point of all, isn't it? His Word will prevail. Not the words of wicked men, not the flattering of lips of the godless. That's not what will prevail. That's not what will last forever. That's not what will be around in the next generation and generation and generation if God should tarry. What will last is the Word of God. We live in a time when the battle is for truth. We are in a war for truth. We are in a battle for what will have authority all around us. What is going to have authority in your heart? What is going to rule your every move? And the question, sadly, and the question continually being asked today, and very often, sadly, and continually in the heart of professing troubled Christians... Can the Scriptures be trusted? Can the Scriptures be trusted? David declares that the words of God are pure. They're entirely trustworthy. You notice how he says it. The words of the Lord, verse 6, are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. In other words, the words of God, the scriptures, the absolute truth that you hold in your hand from God has been tried and it has been found to be completely flawless. You might want to note for yourselves, beloved, that the trying of the word of God is not what has made it flawless. The testing and the trying and the heat that has been placed up and against the Word of God has not what has been the instrument to make it flawless. The trying of the Scriptures, the challenge against the Scriptures, the continual barrage on the truth of God as to whether it is true or not, all of that trying, all it has done is really reveal what it is by its quality, and that is that it is without error. It is like silver ore, David says, that has been brought up from the ground and taken to the smelting plant to remove all of its impurities. It has been siphoned through that purifying fire seven times. What is left is nothing but pure silver. 
David's saying that's what the Word of God is like, being tested throughout the ages by unbelievers, by believers. Always comes out without error. It's always to be found completely flawless. In fact, our it seems as if sometimes here in this church we can't go by a sermon without quoting Charles Spurgeon, so I'll quote him again. Because he commented on this verse, and he said this, quote, The Bible has passed through the furnace of persecution. It has passed through the furnace of literary criticism and philosophic doubt. It has passed through the furnace of scientific discovery and has lost nothing. The only thing it's ever lost is those human interpretations which clung to it as alloy and precious ore, as alloy clings to precious ore. He says those wrong interpretations about Scripture, that's the only thing it's lost, and that isn't it at all. He said the experience of the saints has tried it in every conceivable manner, but not a single doctrine, not a single promise has been consumed in the most excessive heat, unquote. Spurgeon had a way with words. He was right. Nothing has changed today, beloved. Nothing has changed. Wickedness throughout the ages has pounded against and upon the Scriptures with the hopes of destroying the Word of God, but it continues to stand strong. It has not changed. It will not change. And in the end, the wicked will be broken by it. Let us not forget what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, that there is coming a day when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess of those on the earth, above the earth, below the earth. Every single human being who's ever been created by God will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That doesn't mean they're saved, but that means they're acknowledging with verbal assent of who Jesus Christ is. The Word of God is absolutely true, and the wicked will be broken by it. The reason David could sit there and pray this and pray it with confidence is knowing that the Word of God is pure words. That what God says, He will do. And the Lord will arise, and He will do as He said. It's exactly what verse 7 says. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will keep them. Why? Because your promise is sure. You will preserve him from this generation forever. You see, that's the ultimate promise for the Christian. That's the ultimate promise for those who know God through Jesus Christ, who have a relationship with God and live according to the pure words of God. It really doesn't matter what happens around us. It doesn't matter what's taking place. It doesn't matter what they say might take our life. The fact of the matter is God's word is pure. God's word is sure. And nothing can do that to you unless God allows. You will be with God forever. Nothing will change that. And so our answer to the societal ills is not to change society's circumstances. It's not to change those. It's not to go about, like we said last week, trying to promote and somehow get out there some kind of social justice in hopes that that will make society better. That's not going to change society at all. Sin does not breed righteousness. 
What will save the world is the one who came to save the world. Jesus Christ. Individual hearts must be changed. David pleads with the Lord, but his circumstances had not changed. In fact, in verse 8, it tells us that the wicked are still going about their business on every side. The wicked strut about on every side. David sees the problem. David pleads with the Lord. David recognizes the reality of the promise of God that his word is true. And nothing changes in the perspective. The wicked strut about on every side. They're still lying. They're still pragmatic in their flattery. There's still rampant boasting going on. Perhaps even more than there ever was. Circumstances haven't changed, but what has changed? What has changed? Simply David's heart. Simply David's heart. He began with despair. Save us, Lord! Now, now he's just resting on the secure fact now, regardless of what others are doing in our wicked world, we have God's most reliable word. We have that. We stand on the rock. We have a firm foundation. Now, go over to Romans chapter 15. All of that was simply to prepare us for these final comments. Romans chapter 15. Because this is why we are exhorted to live as we ought to live. This is why Paul got to the place where he got in Romans, beginning from chapter 1 all the way to here. This is why we were exhorted to live this sacrificial, self-dying, dying-to-self-life with one another. Because, remember, Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Well, not written in history books of the world, written in the Word of God. Whatever was put in the Word of God is there for our instruction. It's there for us to learn so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. This is the very thing that David was hoping on. This is the very thing that David was encouraged by. It's the Word of God. David did not exhaust the wickedness of men. In our day, we will not exhaust the wickedness of men. Wickedness is going to go on until Christ returns. Fact. All of this around us, all of this going on in our world and in our society here in the West just points to something ahead of us. It points to the ultimate reality when the day comes when the ultimate liar and deceiver will be let loose fully again on the earth after he's bound for a thousand years. And the more wickedness is exalted, the more wickedness will come, and the man of lawlessness will run rampant. 
But that's not the end. That's not the end. God says in Psalm 12, verse 5, I will arise. And He will. And He will. We don't want to be like those who Peter was talking about in 2 Peter who said, listen, God isn't coming. You say He's coming. You say He's returning. But He hasn't come. Everything seems to be the same today as it was yesterday. And Peter says, oh, listen, don't think like that. Don't think like, the, like, like, like that human thought goes because a thousand years is not like you think with God. It's like one day. In fact, how you ought to think is this, that the way in which God hasn't come yet and which God will come because He said He will come and His Word is true, He's going to come and this time in which He has not come, you should not see it as if God doesn't exist. You ought to see it simply as the patience of God which leads you to salvation. God is coming. His word is sure, and he will take us home to be with him. And then he will fully deal with the unrepentant, wicked world. Just as it deserves. So notice what the Apostle Paul says. And I just want to read it. I don't think it takes a lot of a lot of uh, deep time here because I think it's just self-explanatory. Verse 7, Wherefore then, in light of verses 1 to 6 and in light of what I've said from chapter 12 all the way up to this point, wherefore then accept one another. The word accept is received just like Jesus receives us, it says earlier. Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. In other words, live with one another in a unified way, in a way in which you think of the other more highly than yourself, that you live this self-sacrificing life to the glory of God, not to the exaltation of self. You live this life to the exaltation of God because I say to you, Jew and Gentile, the Roman church was having a problem. The Jews thought the Gentiles should be living like the Jews under these rules that they were under, under the law. And the Gentiles are going, wait a minute, we're free in Christ. And he says, I say to you that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God. In other words, to confirm what the Old Testament said to them in order to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. In other words, the plan of God has always been to have both Jew and Gentile in his kingdom. It's always been to have this unity among his people. That's God's plan all the time. It's always been that. The Old Testament shows us that, and, and the New Testament proclaims that to the Gentiles. So you who are in this church live in unity because it's written in the Old Testament, therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, therefore shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles hope. You see, he's saying to the Jewish believer, listen, the Gentiles have always been included. Jesus came in order not only to save you, but to save the Gentile. Don't think you're better than them. 
Don't judge them. Don't use your own spiritual attainments and your own spiritual ways to judge somebody else. Don't do that. So Paul says, listen, let us not lose heart. Let's not lose heart in these times. But rather, let us pray. Let us pray. And then Romans 15, verse 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing. Why? So that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want us to notice something. Because Paul in chapter 1 began this very same way. That's what Paul says in chapter 1 when he begins the very essence of what he wants to write about. For I, verse 16, am not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of preaching what I must preach, telling what I must tell about Jesus Christ, about the surety of the Word of God, about what God does in the heart of a wicked man when he turns from his sin and embraces Christ by faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. To who? To everyone who believes. And then you go all the way through Romans. You go all the way through listening to how every person's condemned before God because of the sin of their heart, because they know the truth of God and they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And it's both Jew and Gentile and no one can claim superiority over another. And you get all the way over to Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. And Paul says, the God of hope, may he fill you with joy and peace in believing You see, salvation starts through faith. And somehow along the line, as we live our Christian faith, sometimes we get in the church and we have to struggle with one another and we see what's going on around us and we live by fear and we start to battle with one another and we talk to one another about things and we struggle with them and we say, well, they're not living like me and they're not doing what I would do. They must not be good Christians. And what we've done is we've begun in that moment, in a practical sense, denying the gospel. Because the gospel saves through faith and it walks you in sanctification by believing what the scriptures say. You have hope filled with all joy and peace in believing. Why? So that you may abound in hope. This individual hope in your believing the truth of the Word of God because it is pure, refined like silver seven times because what God says, God does because it's all true. That believing now is exemplified in this corporate reality of a corporate hope that you, Jew and Gentile, you Christians in the church, you would abound in hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Where's the Holy Spirit working? In you in you in you who believe believing in what god has said living 
each day with one another just as Christ has received us. Paul says, listen, let us die to self so that the world might know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We have a faithful God. And our faithful God loves when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And this single-focused, single-directional reality of exemplifying the gospel. Let us live for Christ, trusting the Scriptures. Let us strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to live by them. Not fearing the things around us. Not fearing what's going on in society. Not holding someone else accountable for preferences and things that I think they shouldn't be doing, but they're doing, but aren't sinful things in and of themselves. And and how dare they do that? They're not like me as a Christian, so they must not be a good Christian. Let's not do that. Let's rather not be God in the lives of others for the sake of the gospel. Let's do that. Let's do that and the world will know that we're Christians by how we love one another. Isn't it interesting in verse 14 that Paul says, And concerning you, my brethren, I'm convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. (laughs) Iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens iron. Based upon the truth of the Word of God, rightly divided. That's what Paul would have us do. That really is the final exclamation point on Paul's message in Romans. From verse 14 on, really, it's, it's personal things that Paul wants to just ask them about. Is coming from the mission or on his missionary journey, getting help, and he expresses these great greetings to certain people in the church. But, but really, verse 13 is the exclamation point. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing. It starts with believing. It continues with believing. And it will end with us believing. Well, I hope and trust we've heard the message this morning. Let's pray together. Father, these are sweet, sweet people of yours. We are faulty, not because of you, but because far too often we we just don't live according to your word. Oh, we are convinced in ourselves that we're mature, strong Christians. And we open your word and it is exactly what you said it to be. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides down to the thoughts and intentions of our heart and we are exposed. Help us respond to that exposure. Help us respond to the glory of you to that exposure. Not hiding, not cowering, not couching our own pride. 
Lord, let us just be humble servants of Yours, living to the glory of You, not requiring everybody else to become like us. May we all become like Christ. Help us be unified as a church that the world might know that we are true disciples of Yours. In spite of what's going on, Lord, it's concerning to us. So we pray, just as David prayed, help remove the flattering lips. Lord, we trust you. We trust your word. Give us confident hope in that, in a real way, in a practical way, that we would not fear. All to your glory, because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.